Thank you, preacher. What a privilege to be here this morning. And if you don't like this, there's got to be something wrong with you. I got saved at an, early, at an early age, and I was raised in a preacher's home. And so I missed out on all of the fun that the world had. I've never been to a rock concert. I've never been to a dance floor. I've never in my life been to a beer joint. In fact, I've never even been to a movie theater in my life. So I, don't, I can't tell what they have by experience, but I cannot imagine that the world would have anything better than this right here. A bunch of crazy people on a Tuesday morning in here shouting and singing and preaching. Thank you, preacher, for letting me come. And just a high honor, just a high honor to be here. And I looked at the flyer the other day at the preachers that would be here. And just to have my name associated with some of those names on that flyer. I've been listening to some of those men all of my life, my heroes in the faith, and uh, just humble beyond words. I, I looked at it, and I was thrilled, Brother Gravely, I was thrilled to have my name on the same flyer as Brother Dana Williams, because I've been listening to Brother Dana since I was just a little, little kid. I really have, and I... <coughs> I told my wife, I told my wife, I gave it to her, and I said, I want you to frame this, and I'm going to hang it in my office right next to the fake doctor's degree so people can see how important I am. And so thank you so much. Just, just delighted to be here. I, I say that everywhere I go, but I really mean it this time. I am glad to be here. Philippians chapter number one. I'm not worried about the time, but I will watch it. And do my best to say my little piece and get out of the way. I would ask that you pray for me. In Florida, about this time of the year, we have this stuff called pollen that starts dropping. And if you have sinus issues, it will do a number on you. And I've been fighting it for the last five or six days. In fact, Sunday wasn't able to preach at all. I had some help there. And so I've been, but right before I left the motel, I got doped up real good. And so I've got a window. I've got a window before everything starts running again. And I'm okay if I don't start crying. If I start crying, then it all just starts loose. And, and the doctor's just about messed it up, but I held it together. I held it together. And so y'all pray for me. Of course, nowadays, preacher, everywhere you go, there'd be some woman wanting to anoint you with oil, put it on your ear tip, something. It seems like that half the women in my church have become snake oil salesmen is what it is. <laughs> Oh, y'all have met them, hadn't you, huh? Y'all, yeah, some of y'all selling it, aren't you, huh? Got a miracle cure for everything. That's what it is. Sell you a little bottle like that for $59. It don't cure nothing. Amen. So if y'all got some, don't, I don't want it, all right? I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. I was laying in bed the other day. I was laying in bed the other night, and I, I just, my head was just full of gunk, and I was coughing and sneezing and, and choking. And my wife had, I think it was peppermint oil. And, and she was putting it on my feet. And, and, I, and I told her, I said, look, I said, my toes are fine. It's my nose I'm having trouble with. They ain't gonna help me down there. But anyway, y'all pray for me. I, I'll get, you know, to get right into the message and get out of the way. And so Philippians chapter number one, I begin reading in verse number 12, read down to verse number 18 from my text and give you what the Lord has placed upon my heart. Philippians chapter one, verse 12, Paul writing, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. 
And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Yes. Of all the missionary stories in the book of Acts, I think the one that I like the most is how the church at Philippi was started. It's told in Acts chapter number 16, Paul and Silas had started out on their second missionary journey and were praying about new areas to go into. It seemed like that the more that they prayed, the more the Lord kept closing doors until finally the Holy Spirit led them to go into Macedonia. Macedonia is Europe, and as far as we know, the gospel had never been preached in Europe before, and so this is a watershed moment in church history. So it is that Paul and Silas come to Philippi, the chief city of Macedonia. It's a new city on a new continent to plant a new church where there had never been one before. We don't know how long they were in Philippi during that first visit, but it was anything but boring, exciting things. Paul and Silas are thrown in prison, they're singing at midnight. There's jailhouse rock. All the prisoners are escaped. Exciting times. But really what was more exciting than all of that was three people that got saved while they were there. Three people who found deliverance from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as a side note, Paul had been a Pharisee before he got saved. And every Pharisee had a little prayer that he would pray every morning. He would get up and wash his face. And he would thank God for three things. He would thank God that he was not a woman. He would thank God that he was not a slave. He would thank God that he was not a Gentile. When he comes to Philippi, a woman gets saved. And a slave gets saved. And a Gentile gets saved. And all three become charter members of the church at Philippi. You know, really, if you want to know the kind of people that God will save, you can't look any farther than Philippi. I think how when I look at Philippi, how that God saves those with tender hearts. Lydia was devout. She was sincere. She was religious. She was lost. There's a little phrase in Acts 16 that says her heart, the Lord, had opened. She believed in the one true God, but she didn't know about his son. And her heart was already stirred toward God, and she was seeking all that she needed was a preacher to come and to preach the gospel to her. And truth found a receptive, responsive cord in her tender heart. If you're here this morning, by the way, and you're not saved, I hope that you have a tender heart toward Christ. I hope that you've not heard it so much that you become gospel hardened. And if you want to know God, and if you're seeking for truth, if you're responsive, if you're receptive, God will save you. God saves those with tender hearts. But in Philippi, we learn that God saves those with tormented hearts. There's a little damsel there who is possessed with demons. Somehow she's being used for gain by her cruel masters. What a sad situation, a slave girl that is bound by sin and by Satan. 
Lydia was a moral woman, but this little girl has probably been made to do unspeakable things. But I'm glad that God appeals to all classes of society. I, I say to you tonight, this morning, that ever who you are, ever what you've done, I promise you that Jesus is the answer to what you need. He saves those with tender hearts. He saves those with tormented hearts. I'm glad that God saves those with tough hearts. Paul and Silas were thrown in jail at midnight, didn't have anything else to do, and so they started a little gospel concert. The earthquake came and the jailhouse broke open and all the prisoners escaped. The jailer came, comes and sees it, and the jailer panics. You see, this is more of a serious situation to him than it is to you because he's expected to guard the prison with all of his life. And he would have taken a sword and committed suicide had not Paul and Silas stopped him. Here is a man who is having a crisis experience. And you know there are some people who will never come to God until they have a crisis experience in their life. This is a tough-hearted man. It takes a crisis experience to get him to God. It could be this morning there's somebody here and you take this all in and you wink and snicker and kind of shun the gospel. But you know God has a way of getting hold of hard, tough hearts. And God can put you in a crisis experience and get your attention. So it's not a bad way to start a church. Three people from three different walks of life that God saves and this church is started. Paul would later visit the church at Philippi one more time on his third journey. That would be his last face-to-face contact with the church at Philippi. Ten years after his first visit, he would write the letter of Philippians back to that church that he loved dearly. It is one of the most personal of all of his letters. In verse number three, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I have you in my mind. In verse number four, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, I have you in my prayers. In verse number seven, he says, it is meet for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. I've got you on my mind. I've got you in my prayers and I have you on my heart. But what prompts Paul to write this letter is not so much his concern for them as it is their concern for him from the best chronology that we can put together. It has been several years since the church at Philippi has been in contact with the Apostle Paul. And in recent years, there has been some news that has filtered back to them of some legal trouble that Paul has run into. In fact, this very writing, Paul is sitting in prison, house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial. Understandably, they're concerned. They want to know how that Paul is doing. And so they send one of their own men, a man named Epaphroditus, to uh, deliver a love offering, but to get a firsthand account of his affairs. And I don't know how long Epaphroditus was in Rome, but when he left, he had this letter in his hands. And what the church really wants to know is, Paul, how are you doing? Are you safe? Are you still under arrest? Do you think you'll be released? Is this the end of the road? How is your health doing? So Paul takes a pen and he begins to write. For the first 11 verses, he gets a very customary greeting. But in verse number 12, he begins to address their concerns. He says in verse 12, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me. 
Now what's interesting to me is that Paul references some things have happened to him, but it doesn't tell you what things they are. He doesn't give you any details. He doesn't spread it out. He just references some things have happened. If you want to know what those things are, you'd have to go back to the latter half of the book of Acts and you'd have to see what he's talking about. But Paul's not seeking pity. He's not spreading bad news. He's not trying to solicit empathy from anybody. He's not making himself into some kind of hero. And, 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 and by the way, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for some men who can go through trouble and don't have to put it out all on Facebook every day. And, I had to tell you all of the details and try to have a martyr's complex. And so if they're going to find out what things he's talking about, somebody else is going to have to tell them. Because he's not really interested in the things. He's interested in what God is doing through those things. I'll take just a moment and I'll, I'll come back to Acts chapter 21 and I'll, I'll just quickly catch you up for sake of context. Um, Toward the end of his third missionary journey, Paul had been intent to go to Jerusalem for that year's Passover. You and I can disagree on this. I, I personally believe, and don't count me as a heretic, I, I personally believe that God had warned him several times not to go, and he was bound to go anyway. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, he, he runs into some trouble. He goes into the temple area. The Jews get mad. They start a riot because they think he's taking a Gentile in there and desecrating a temple, and the Roman guards, they have to come and arrest him and they put him in jail, not for punishment, but for his protection so the Jews don't kill him. He's whisked away to Caesarea. He sits in prison in Caesarea, which is the Roman army outpost of that area. He sits there for two years. And during that time, they don't know what to do with him. We don't have a crime to charge him with. We can't let him loose because the Jews would kill him. There, there's insults, there's slander, there's gossip, there's, there's an ambush on his life. Anybody that's, everybody that's anybody comes and interrogates him. Felix comes, Festus comes, and Herod talks to him. And because Paul's a Roman citizen, he's able to appeal his case to Caesar. So after two years of sitting in Caesarea, finally he wins an appeal and they put him on a ship and they send him to Rome. That's where he's headed. Of course, you know on the way, chapter 27, that there's a shipwreck and, and he's stranded on the island of Malta for three months. When he gets to Rome, finally, he's under house arrest and he's charged with a violent crime. And so there's no, not charged with a violent crime. There's no Jewish mob there to, uh, to want to kill him. And so he's under house arrest and, and he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. But, but he's under that arrangement. He would be there for two years until finally he's released. Those are the things that Paul references in Philippians chapter 1. And again, again, he doesn't give you all the details. I don't know how much the church at Philippi knew about any of that story, but they're going to have to find it from somebody else. I admire a man that doesn't have to tell you all of his troubles. He may not be having the best day, but he's not going to ruin your day by telling you about it. And, and so he, he just quietly, quietly bears his own crosses. He mentions in verse 13 very briefly his chains so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. Again, house arrest. Uh, he can receive visitors. He can write correspondence. He can live in a house. The bonds part is he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. The Roman custom is to rotate that guard every six hours so four guards in a 24-hour time period. In verse 14 through 17, he mentions his critics. 
He says in 15, some indeed preach Christ even in envy of sight, some also of good will. When you read that, you have to wonder if you read it right because some of the brethren are envious at Paul. They see an opportunity to add to his affliction and they actually want to add um, pain to Paul's injuries. And so they devise this wicked plan. They go out and they begin to preach the gospel, not to see people saved, but hoping that it'll stir up the Roman uh, government and citizens. And in order to stop that, that they would persecute Paul, the ringleader. What, what, what wicked men they are. But then he mentions in verse number 18 his confidence, what they are not standing every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, I there and do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. And, and I, I, I love that attitude that I'm not going to tell you how unsafe my, unfair my arrest has been. I'm not going to tell you how hard the conditions have been. I'm not going to tell you how uncomfortable prison is. I'm not going to tell you how unfair that it's taken two years to hear my appeal. I'm not going to tell you how lonely I, I, I get at night. I'm not going to tell you how many comforts. I, in fact, I'm not even going to tell you the names of my critics. No, here's what's important. Christ is priest and I rejoice and will rejoice. Amen. Sitting in this room this morning, every one of us could stand and give a testimony of things that have happened to us. All of us could tell a sad tale of something that we didn't ask for, that we don't think that we deserve, certainly something that we didn't want. But if Christ, God is glorified, if Christ is exalted, if the gospel advances, if the brethren are strengthened, then let us somehow look past the things that have happened and see the hand of God in those things. I've got to hurry. I'm looking at the text this morning and here's the way that I would break it down. Verse 12, here's what Paul says. He says, some things have happened. However, the gospel is going forth. One of Paul's desires had been to go to Rome for the gospel's sake. There was already a church in Rome, but he wanted to go and certainly that would be a great launching place to expand the gospel into farther horizons. In fact, his plans when he was in Jerusalem, his plans had been to leave there and go directly to Rome. And then he landed in prison. <clears throat> Sitting there one night, by the way, Paul wondered if he, would ever, if he would ever get to Rome. And God came to him and said, as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, thou must bear witness also at Rome. Paul, I'm not done with you. I will get you to Rome. Paul, of course, wanted a safe journey to go there. He expected to go as a preacher. He wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, and, and he said, I, I pray to have a prosperous journey to you. Well, now, shipwreck is not necessarily a prosperous journey. So, so, so he didn't expect to go as a prisoner. He wanted to go as a preacher. He thought to have a prosperous journey. He wasn't counting on shipwreck. Here's the point. He's in Rome. So what does it matter how you got there? He's in Rome, and he's preaching. And what looks like situations that is not conducive to preaching the gospel, actually the opposite is true. What looks like would hinder the gospel, I believe, is going to help the gospel. What looks like would stop the spread of the gospel is going to facilitate the spread of the gospel. He says in verse number 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest. Watch this in all the palace and in all other places. The Roman custom was to chain, take a political prisoner like Paul, chain him 24 hours to a security team. These men are members of the elite Praetorian Guard. These are the special forces of the Roman army. They rotate on a six hour shift, 24 hours a day. Now I gotta be honest with you, I'm a loner. 
I'm, I'm a hermit kind of guy. I really wouldn't like that. I would not care to have somebody chained to me 24 hours a day. That's too much fellowship for me. But Paul didn't see this so much as, as him being chained to a guard. He saw this as a guard being chained to him. Paul saw this not as him as the captive, but as having a captive audience. You ever tried to witness to somebody and they're trying to walk away? Well, how do you walk away when you're chained to the guy? I, I, I don't know, maybe somebody in the church at Rome had been praying about starting a jail ministry. Well, this is a good start. I don't know, maybe one of them had, had been praying about how can we get the gospel into Caesar's palace. Uh, maybe a member of the church had a son that was in the army that's praying about how we could get somebody. Boy, if God would just send a preacher to my son. And what God has arranged is he's arranged the elite guards of the Roman army chained to the greatest preacher of the generation. I, I, I imagine in my mind, if there is such a thing as sanctified imagination, I, I, I think what it would be like for a Roman pagan to be chained to Paul for six hours in a day. Paul probably got up early in the morning because all great men of God get up early in the morning and Paul probably got up early in the morning to pray and woke that guard up and said, now we're gonna spend the first couple of hours on our knees in prayer. And then Paul would get up and say, now, now I'm gonna spend an hour or two and I'm gonna write some correspondence, some letters to some churches and you just sit here while I write. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is to get, do you understand what I'm writing? And churches would come and Christians would come and Paul would counsel them. And for six hours, for six hours, that Roman guard would have to be chained to Paul and Paul would witness to him and Paul would tell him about the Jesus that they'd crucified is the son of God and he died on that cross for your sins and he'll forgive you of your sins. And six hours later, he'd let him loose and another guard would come in and Paul would say, now I'll spend the afternoons in prayer. Let's get on our knees, we're gonna pray a while. Paul would start it all over again. And through those chains, Paul is able to preach to an audience he would not have been able to preach to without those chains. I believe that the gospel began to, get, began to spread. Some of them got saved. They went back into Caesar's palace. In fact, in the last verse of chapter four of the same chapter, verse number 22, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Somehow, some of Caesar's family has gotten saved and the gospel has gotten into that dark, place. I tell you this morning that there's always been opposition to the gospel. Paul said a great doors opened unto me and there are many adversaries. He wrote to the Thessalonians about his time in Philippi. He said we spoke the word with boldness but there was much contention. He told Timothy he said I'm bound but the word of God is not bound. There has always been opposition to the gospel but the opposition has never stop the gospel. It has always ran counter to logic because there is a supernatural force behind it. And every measure taken to stop the gospel only spreads the gospel. They told John Bunyan that he couldn't preach without a license and so he sat in jail 12 years, 14 years. They wrote the license and put a pin and hung it outside the cell. All you have to do is reach through, sign the license, we'll let you loose. 
His church would come and they would stand outside the bars of the window of his cell and would preach through the cell jail, through the jail window to his church. The jailer said, I'll stop that. So he moved him to an inside cell where he couldn't speak to his congregation. So he took up a pen and wrote Pilgrim's Progress. How do you stop a man like that? It could be this morning that even in camp meeting, somebody in this room, you feel chained. You feel chained to your house. You feel chained to your job. You feel chained to a bad marriage. You feel chained by some affliction. But can you somehow see how that God can take those chains and somehow use it to spread the gospel around the world? God puts you in places and God gives you opportunities that you might preach the gospel from where you are. Paul says some things have happened unto me. It's not important what they are, but the gospel is going forth. Notice if you would quickly, not only that, but I want you to notice in verse number 14 that not only is the gospel going forth, but the brethren are made bold. Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There were two emperors in Rome during Paul's time, Claudius and Nero. Claudius was mostly tolerant of the Jews and Christians. He turned toward the end of his reign. Nero was a madman. Nero was evil incarnate. And about the time that Paul comes to Rome that first time is about the time that Nero begins his reign of terror. He was a madman. History says that in AD 58 is when Paul came to Rome. AD 59, Nero had his mother killed. Three years later in AD 62, he had his wife killed. Two years later, AD 64, the city of Rome burned to the ground. Many believe that Nero started the fire and used it to use the Christians as a scapegoat and to persecute them for that. Nero was a madman. Historians say that Nero found um, the most um, torturous ways to persecute the Christians. Not only were they crucified, but they were sewn up in animal skins and they were thrown to wild animals. He would light them on fire. He would cover them with pitch and light them on fire. He used them as lanterns to light his gardens at night. Evil incarnate. And I'm not just giving a history lesson, it's putting this in context. Because the church at Rome was just beginning to feel the opening throes of the greatest persecution in church history. They knew that Nero was insane. They knew that the citizens disdained them. They knew that their liberties were being taken away. They knew that they risked their lives by following Christ. And now their leader, the great apostle Paul, was sitting in prison awaiting trial and maybe even executed. Here's what Paul said. That that church has witnessed the strength of God in my life. And he says that many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If Paul can preach in prison, then I ought to be able to preach outside of prison. If Paul can preach chained to a guard, I ought to be able to preach not chained to a guard. If he can witness where he's at, I should be able to witness where I'm at. And the spirit of the imprisoned Paul gave them courage to stand in their own trial. 
You ever watch somebody go through a dark trial and the way that they remain strong strengthens you? Because you know the reality is that sometimes God puts you through a storm not so much for your benefit as it is for the benefit those are watching you. Every time that I think I've got it bad, every time I start getting depressed and discouraged and, 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 and thinking about how hard life is, I find somebody who's got a little bit harder than me. And they're not bitter and they're not angry at God and they're not quitting on God. And, and there are brothers in the church at Rome and they're watching Paul in these chains for two years and he's still witnessing and he's still praying and he's still got joy. And if Paul can do it in prison, I should be able to do it outside of prison. Paul says, I've got some chains and some things have happened unto me. But what God is doing, he's strengthened the brethren through those things. Dave Frederick, member of our church, early, early 40s. Wife, four kids, um, strong as an ox, healthy as a horse, never had a health problem. And three years ago, Dave Frederick went in to have neck surgery, two, two vertebrae that need to be fused together, be in surgery, be out the next day. I was at the hospital with his wife. We're joking, we're talking. They wheel him in, put him under anesthesia, do the surgery, put him in the recovery room. Dave doesn't come out under anesthesia for 30 days. When he comes out, his brain is injured. And long story short, long story short, for the last three years, it has been nonstop therapy. See this doctor, that doctor, Atlanta, Gainesville, it's here, it's there. He's confined to a wheelchair. He can't talk except barely whisper. Can't clothe himself, can't feed himself. Completely disabled. Unless God does an absolute miracle, Dave Frederick will spend the rest of his life in that wheelchair and never walk again. And I don't understand that. But I'll tell you what else I don't understand. It's Sunday morning, they'll wheel him in that wheelchair in that back door. And they'll park him right there on that back pew in that wheelchair. Choir got up Sunday singing, I sing me a song about Jesus, tell me about his great love. It got on a little bit. And Dave Frederick will take, he'll raise himself up as much as he can. He'll balance himself, tears streaming down his face, to worship the Lord. And I look back there at that and I say, if he can still sing, if he's still got joy, if he's not bitter at God, then what's my problem? Well, Paul says some things have happened unto me, but the gospel's going forth. The brethren are made bold. And then Paul says in verse 15, some things have happened, but the critics are confounded. Some preach Christ, even of envy and strife, some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing that affliction to my bonds. You would think that every Christian in Rome would rally to the support of the apostle Paul, but it wasn't so. There's some brethren that are jealous of him. They're envious of the ministry God's given him. They want to sit in the seat where he sits and they've devised this wicked plan to bring Paul down. We're going to start a preaching campaign. We're not interested in souls being saved, but if we can add fuel to his fire, that's what we'll do. By the way, these are not pagans. These are not Judaizers. These aren't Pharisees. These are brethren. It's him that they don't like. And they're going to preach the gospel with impure motives, hoping that it causes trouble for Paul. 
if I've learned anything in 20 plus years of pastoring, it is that church folks can be some of the meanest, vile, vindictive people on the face of God's earth. There is no limit to the lies they'll tell. There is no limit to the mud that they'll throw against the wall hoping that something sticks. And more than one pastor in here knows that the people that you help the most one day will be the people who hurt you the worst. Well, there's vindication. Do you know the vindication? Is you know Paul's name, but you don't know their name. You know Paul, but you don't know who the critics are. And as far as we know, they didn't start any churches. They didn't win anybody to Christ. They didn't write any epistles. They didn't have any impact. Paul moved his world. I don't know if they moved anybody. Paul reached two continents for Christ. I don't know if they reached two people for Christ. And and if you are ever under attack, there is a natural desire to rise up and defend yourself and maybe even strike back. All of us want to wade into the battle and sling the sword and let some blood fly. But why don't you just let God fight your battles and you just do what you're supposed to do. And before you post that reply to Facebook and before you write that letter and before you get in the flesh and you try to get some vindication, just give it to God and commit yourself to the work. And and vindication will be when God honors your work. They can't figure out why he's still standing. They can't figure out why God didn't kill him. And Paul says some things have happened, but the critics are confounded. I've got to hurry. It's starting to run. I've got to hurry. Paul says some things have happened, but the preacher is still praising. Look at verse 18. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and we rejoice. His chains couldn't stop him and his critics couldn't silence him. And you'll never hear a word of complaint from this man. And he tells them, he tells them that I rejoice and will rejoice. Haven't heard the verdict yet. I'm not sure if this is the end of the road. I'm not sure if there's more ministry. I don't know. But no matter what happens, I will rejoice. In fact, he tells them in chapter 4, he tells them the same thing in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the reason why he can tell them in chapter 4 is because he practiced it in chapter 1. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if God's going to cure me or not. I don't know if the critics are going to, I, I don't know. But no matter what happens, I'm going to rejoice. And by the way, if you're going to rejoice always, you'll have to rejoice in the Lord. Because that's the only constant you have in your life. If your joy is in your job, what are you going to do when you lose your job? If your joy is in relationships, what are you going to do when that relationship turns sour? If your joy is in people, what are you going to do when people disappoint you? And Paul, and by the way, Paul's not saying, hey, just have a happy face and, be, and just praise the Lord anyway. That's kind of silly. Because there are some days that I get up and I don't feel like whistling. I'll be honest with you, there are some days in my life that I don't feel like shouting, but I can rejoice in the purposes of God and the care of God and the providence of God and the faithfulness of God. And when Paul says in everything give thanks, sometimes it's hard to give thanks for everything. And he doesn't say that, but he says give thanks in everything. 
It's hard to thank you for the cancer, but thank you for sustaining me in the cancer. It's hard to thank you for the dark valley, but thank you for walking with me in the dark valley. It's hard to thank you for the storm, but thank you for what you're growing in my life through the storm. And every person in this room could stand and you could tell the story of some things that have happened. And I'd like to think that I could probably stand and Tell as good a story as you can. Want to talk about church problems? I can talk about that. You got a critic that's trying to destroy you? Sit down at the table. I'll tell you how vicious they can be. You got physical issues that won't go away? Let's talk. I can talk about that. But somewhere in life, you've got to look past the things and you have to see God. Is God doing anything through your life, through those things. And one day you'll look back and say, thank you even for the things. Awesome, things have happened. And I'm not going to tell you the details, they're not important. But all I'll tell you is that through these things, the gospel's going forth. And God's using my testimony to strengthen some brethren. Critics are confounded. And I've still got my song. And maybe you ought to just bow your head this morning and say, God, help me to quit focusing so much time on the things and help me to see you and what you're trying to grow in my life through the things that have happened.